Let's pray and let's get after it. God, I thank you for those who could gather here in person today and what a joy it is to see uh, there are just diverse and varied faces looking back. Um, God, I thank you for those who can gather virtually. Uh, I thank you for your provision and your protection in the midst of COVID, um, how you have cared for us. God, I thank you for how you have fought to bring us unity and to maintain unity in the midst of all of these struggles and differences of opinion and everything else. God, we thank you for the Easter season as we celebrate the death and resurrection of your son. And God, we thank you for this chance to, to celebrate that yet this morning as, as we look at the scenes that lead up to it. God, I thank you for the chance to preach your word. And I pray that you would use it powerfully both in my lives and in the lives of all who hear. God, give us minds that are attentive. Give us hearts that are, that are humble and that are tender and that are broken and that see our need to be built up by you for your glory. Amen. All right, guys, so we are continuing this series in Matthew, uh, kind of the tail end of Matthew, the last few chapters called the Gospel of the King. And we're looking at the arrest and the trial and the death and resurrection of Jesus and everything that surrounds that, his death in our place for our sin so that we could be reconciled to God. And what we saw last week is that Rob's sermon ended with Jesus still hanging on the cross. And that's hard and difficult and horrible, and yet it's also beautiful. Because we saw that Jesus was hanging on the cross in order to bear our shame, in order that we would be forever freed from our shame. He took it away from us. He took it on himself in order that we might never need to deal with it again. So what we see on the cross is that it's an agonizing and gut-wrenching process that God ordained in order to bring about deliverance and restoration and recreation. It's a horrible process, and yet there are beautiful, amazing, wonderful results. And so we're, we're celebrating and continuing in that tension this morning. Like Good Friday, it was, a, it was a horribly dark day. So it's appropriate that the scene that we're beginning today, it opens in darkness. Be, because it was dark and it was a supernatural, hope-stifling darkness. Likewise, the text we're looking at today, it continues in mockery. It continues in pain. We continue to see shame as Jesus ultimately comes to his death. But what's so wonderful about this text is that the, the darkness gives way to light. And the mockery and the defeat, it gives way to victory. And though we don't see it all in this text yet, we don't see the resurrection until Sunday morning. And we, even today, we don't see creation fully restored and functioning in the way that God ordained. What we see in the death of Jesus is that we see a detonation. We see a bomb go off, and then we see the, the power of that moment cascading throughout human history and reaching us even here today. So that's what we're celebrating today. We're looking at the death of Jesus, and we're looking at these glimpses and these hints at the results of the death of Jesus. We're going to look at five things, just little snapshots of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and how we respond to it. So again, we're looking at the death of Jesus, what he accomplished, and how we respond. Um, kicking it off in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. 
He says from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That's from noon until about 3 p.m. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. People are like, oh, how does that work? Is that an eclipse? What's going on? Is it a storm? We don't know. It doesn't explicitly say, but we know it's not an eclipse. Because like the Jewish festival calendar, they're celebrating the Passover at this point. And the festival calendar, it's based on the moon. And it has the moon in a position that doesn't allow for an eclipse at this time. There's, there's no indication of a storm. That one of the closest things we see to this in Scripture, we see at the time of the Exodus. When God brought judgment, when he brought plagues on, on the nation of Egypt and judgment on them for enslaving his people. We see that he brought darkness on the land for three days. And here we see darkness on the land for three hours. And again, it's, we don't know what causes it, but it seems to just be this pervasive, supernatural darkness. As though the entire creation was joining with God the Father in mourning the death of his son. As though God simply turned off the light switch. He simply turned off the sun and everything goes silent. The entire scene goes silent. In, in each of the gospels, we don't see any dialogue. We don't see any interaction. We don't, nobody sees anything because it's dark, but the, the plot doesn't seem to move forward. We just have three hours of darkness in which the sinless son of God suffers alone on the cross. Again, in our place for our sin that we might be reconciled to God. No dialogue, no drama, Jesus hanging alone. And then verse 46, the story picks up again. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jillian read to us from the text that, that, that this is quoted from, from Psalm 22, this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a huge question. And it raises so many other huge questions. What does it mean for God the Father to forsake God the Son? What are the implications in the Trinity? How do, how, what does forsake mean? How do how you do that? Can, can, can God the Father in any way be, be separated from God the Son? And so people wrestle with that and they ask, well, was, was Jesus really forsaken? Or did he, did he just think he was forsaken? Or did he feel like he was forsaken? What is going on here? It brings to mind other questions like related to other scriptures and, and what exactly they mean. Like um, when Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean that Jesus was made to be sin for us? It means that he truly bore our sin. It means that Jesus received our sin upon himself. In, in, in the words of the Reformation, in the words of Martin Luther, our sin was imputed 
to Jesus. Our sin was credited to Jesus. He received our sin. So that by grace through faith, we might receive his righteousness. That his righteousness might be imputed to us. That his righteousness might indwell us. That his righteousness might be credited to us. That is the sweet exchange. That is the beauty of the gospel. Yes, Jesus was forsaken. In fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 22, verse 1, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why does Jesus ask why? Was Jesus surprised by this moment? Did it catch him off guard? Was, was he not expecting this to happen? I don't think that why is a question of confusion. I think why is a declaration of agony. Have you ever been in excruciating pain? Some of the moms in the room, when you gave birth, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that there were why questions. Why is this happening? And it, and it wasn't that you didn't understand the mechanics or the logistics or whatever. It was this is horrible. And why is one of the ways that we state horror. But Jesus knew this was coming. He predicted over and over and over again. Um, John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's, he's predicting his imminent death. He told his disciples, now my heart is troubled. And, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus wasn't surprised by the cross. He wasn't surprised by God's wrath. He wasn't surprised to be forsaken. He's simply calling out the reality that Psalm 22 it was about him. It was a prophecy about him. And that prophecy began with God the Father turning away from God the Son, with, with God the Son being forsaken. But, but we continue to see the scene unfold. And, and even as, as Matthew describes the scene, he, he goes to great lengths to show us there's, there's a parallelism, there's a fulfillment, there's a back and forth between Psalm 22 and what happened on the cross. So like in, in verse 7, um, we, we hear about mocking. And, and it talks about that, that the people who are mocking him, they wagged their head at him. You know, that, that condescending thing that you do, kind of swiveling your head back and forth, wagging your head. That's what the people did to Jesus. Or, or when we get to verse 16, that, that it talks about that his hands and his feet were pierced. Or verse 18, that, that his, his garments were divided. But what's also beautiful is that Psalm 22, it, it begins in pain. It begins in agony. It begins in, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends in triumph. It ends in victory. It ends in, in restoration. When God the Father looks again on God the Son and receives him and welcomes him and now welcomes us with him because he has suffered in order that we might be redeemed. Amen? It's beautiful and it's wonderful. Jesus fully understood what was happening, but the mob did not understand. The crowd was confused. Look at verse 47. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And they said that because the words are kind of similar. And, and there's debate like, was Jesus crying out in, in Hebrew? You know, which is like the language of the Old Testament scriptures, the language of the Jewish people. Or was he, 
he crying out in, in Aramaic, which was kind of like the, the dumbed-down regional kind of blending of Hebrew with some other things. It was kind of like, if you're a northerner and you're kind of condescending to the south, it's kind of like, was he talking like the Midwest or was he, or was he saying y'all and this sort of thing, okay? So, so, so we don't really know in, in when he spoke the words, was it, was it Eli or Eloi? That's like Hebrew or Aramaic. I don't remember which is which, whatever. Either way, it kind of sounds like Elijah. And if you imagine that, that he's been hanging on the cross for a while and, and his breathing has been labored and he's been trying to catch his breath because it, ultimately crucifixion is death by suffocation. You can imagine if his throat is dry and a little bit raspy, it, it might be hard to distinguish the words. And if you think back to the previous scenes and realize how beaten and bruised and bloody he is and how fat his lips are and how much blood has dried and kind of stitched things back together, it's easy to imagine that he's mumbling a little bit, that he's, that he's struggling a little bit, that, that the words aren't enunciated quite as clearly as they would be if all of your teeth were still in their place and there was no blood on your lips, okay? So it's, it's easy to see why they'd be confused. What exactly is he saying? And and so somebody jumps in, and maybe he felt compassion. Maybe he just wanted to hear Jesus speak a little bit more clearly. Whatever the case, it says immediately, one of them ran, and he got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar, and he put it on a stick, and he, he offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now, now leave him alone, and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. So one guy, again, whether it's compassion or, or just curiosity to hear the words of Jesus, he intervenes. Everyone else is like, stop messing with the show. Okay, this, this is drama. We come out to see the show. We come out to see people suffer. We come out to see people die. You know, don't, don't it's, it's like, you know, you're watching the game or whatever, and the kid comes in and, and bumps the remote, and you kind of like freak out, like, I, I'm into this, you know? And, and they're into that, and they don't want anybody messing with their show. But in reality, the show, at least as it concerns the death of Jesus, is almost over. Verse 50, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Matthew doesn't record the content of his cry. We, we put the different gospels together and, and we, can, we can stitch together the sayings of Jesus on the cross in the order that they came in. We read in the gospel of John that, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Tetelestai, it is finished. An accounting term, meaning that the debt has been paid. It's been paid in full. The debt of our sin has been atoned for. It is over. It is finished. And then Luke's gospel, we read the final words. He says, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Now again, I want you to think about this scene. Crucifixion, it's, it's horrible in a thousand different ways. But again, ultimately, crucifixion is death by suffocation. So when, when the victim gets to the end, they don't tend to be crying out in a loud voice because the victim has no air. Again, their, their, their throat is, is dry. They have no strength. The, the moment when somebody dies of crucifixion is when they no longer have the strength to push up on their legs and pull up with their arms and raise their diaphragm enough that they can catch another breath. That's how they usually die. So they die with no air. 
They die with no strength. They die with no voice. They, they, they die with no wits. Their mind is shot because it's been deprived of air for too long, their brain has, okay? But not the case with Jesus. He suffered for our sins. He declared his suffering to be done. And he voluntarily laid down his life with strength to spare. He cried out, it is finished. And he committed his spirit to God the Father. Not confused about why he was there or why it was happening or what was going on, but knowing this is the plan from eternity past. And we have completed the plan, and it is beautiful. And I go to be with my Father, just like he told the thief in the other gospel on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen? Beautiful, wonderful, joyful. So far we've looked at the death of Jesus. From here, we see five hints, five glimpses, five snapshots of what Jesus accomplished in his death. And we, and we see how his death, it just sends shockwaves throughout the entire creation, throughout all of history. And so we'll wrestle with how we respond to those hints and those glimpses of what Jesus has accomplished. First thing we see is access to God. Beautiful, unimpaired access to the throne room of God the Father. We just watched as Jesus breathed his last, as Jesus gave up his spirit. Now verse 51. It says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And people point out, it's from top to bottom because this isn't some guy coming into the temple and messing thing up. This isn't done by human. No, this is God reaching down from heaven and grabbing the top and pulling. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? There's some speculation and ambiguity. Some think, some think it's the curtain that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. The Jews, God's chosen people, the Jews, the, the people who had greater access to the temple, the Gentiles, probably all of us in the room, certainly most of us in the room, the, the people who were spiritual outsiders, that, that that curtain was torn so that we could also have access to God. And that is certainly true. I'm with the majority camp that would say the curtain that's probably being referred to is the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The curtain that closed off the most sacred space within the temple. The place in which God, the triune God, dwelt by his spirit on earth. The, the place into which no one could go except the high priest, and that only once a year, after sacrifices and pageantry and a certain procedure, he could go in offering sacrifice for sin once a year. But no one else had that kind of access to God. What do we see in this moment? What do we see in the moment of Jesus' death? We see that that curtain is ripped open. And all of creation, through the blood of Christ, can come to God. And it's amazing that we have access by grace through faith to the throne room of the Father. It's a beautiful thing. Up to that moment, God was behind the curtain. God was beyond our reach. Sin kept us from entering into the presence of a holy God. Temple ground was holy ground. Our feet were too filthy. Our feet were too wicked to come into the presence of God. But now, 
through the death of Jesus, that ancient temple system has been destroyed. Now, by grace through faith, we are the temple. We are the place in which God dwells by his spirit. We have access. It's amazing. How do we respond to that? We celebrate. In the, in the words of uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He says, you have access to the God of all creation. Take advantage of that access. You got an all-expenses-paid pass. Go and use it. Man, if, if you have a membership to Sam's Club, you go to Sam's Club and enjoy that. You have access to the throne room of God. Enjoy it. Let's walk with him and talk with him. Let's, let's listen and let's dialogue with our God. Amen? First thing we see is access. The second thing we see is the defeat of death. Back to verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. It's through the death of Jesus that death itself is destroyed. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, death itself begins to work backwards. Now, this is a little bit easier to see in some translations than others. Um, The original languages, the original Greek, it has no punctuation. It's, It's just letters. It doesn't even have spaces between words. And so there were some decisions to be made. Where do we end the sentences? Where Where do we make the breaks? And different translations will do this a little bit differently. But studying it out this week, I really think that that when it says the tombs were broke open, I think think that's where we put the period. We should probably understand it to stop there. Like, that's Good Friday. And and what follows of the bodies being raised, that's probably actually Sunday morning when when Jesus is raised, that others are raised. So, so what do we get from the tombs being broken open? We get that in the same way that the, that the curtain being torn in two, it expressed God's judgment on this whole temple system that, that, that had like tiers and procedures and, and, and all of these barriers to access to God, that God abolished all of that so that we might have access to him through the sun. In, in the same way that that physical tearing of the curtain showed that the temple system was over. The breaking open of these tombs showed that death was over. That that in the death of Jesus, this this bomb goes off and it begins to cascade. And, And in that moment, the power of death is broken. The tomb is broken open. There is no power anymore that can hold us in the grave. There is no power anymore that can hold our loved ones lost in Christ in times past in the grave. And that is amazing. That is beautiful. That is wonderful. Some of you who are young, some of you who've only lost grandparents, some of you who weren't very close to the grandparents that you lost, it might be like, yeah, you know, pie in the sky, heaven, get to see grandpa, whatever. But when you lose somebody who's the dearest person to you in the world, when you lose that parent that you're closer to, when you lose a child, when you lose a spouse, Oh, and you find out that the power of death has been broken and there is nothing that can hold that person in the grave again. Oh, that is worthy of celebration. Amen? Wow. That is what happens at that moment that Jesus died. 
The tombs are broken open. How do we respond to that? We rejoice. We have hope. We weep and we mourn the loss of those we love because death is an invader. Death is an intruder. Death is not natural. Death is not God's design for a perfect and beautiful world. But we do not mourn like those who have no hope. We don't live our lives as though 60, 70, 80 years and then the end. No, we live our lives knowing that, that life begins after that. Oh, and we, we live recklessly and radically for the glory of God. That other people might know the reconciliation and the restoration that he offers. Amen? Man, what a beautiful opportunity that we have. We recognize and celebrate that as horrible as death is, in Jesus Christ, the power of death has been broken. But it's not just that Jesus defeats death or destroys the power of death, but the death of Jesus releases the power of the resurrection. Normally in Christian theology, we think of the resurrection as a future event. Yeah, Jesus was raised, but the church is raised in the future. That is, that is off in the distance for the day that Jesus returns for his people. But here we see a preview of that day. We see a hint of what is to come. Here we see that it's the death of Jesus that triggers the resurrection of the saints. Verse 52, the, to the tombs broke open. Again, I would say the tombs broke open, period. That's Good Friday. That's the end of that. Next scene, fast forward to Sunday morning. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. They, they, went in, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. It's kind of like the lights going out thing. It's another one of those bizarre scenes. It, it raises more questions than it answers. Like, like, like what's going on here? you like, who were these people and why were they raised and not others? And, and did they die again of natural causes or, or were they like Jesus, raised with an immortal body that can never perish, spoil, or fade? Did they walk around for a while like Jesus walked around and then eventually ascend into heaven? That would be my guess. Because we're talking about resurrection and we're talking about a resurrection that is born of the death of Jesus and that's the kind of resurrection that he offers a complete and perfect restoration of all that is broken in this world. So many questions the text doesn't specifically answer, but what it simply highlights is this additional shockwave radiating from the death of Jesus. That the death of Jesus triggers the resurrection of the saints. Again, with, with death defeated, there's simply no power to keep them in the grave. How do we respond to that? Again, we rejoice that there's no power that can keep us in the grave. We rejoice that there is no power that can keep our loved ones gone before us in Christ in the grave. We rejoice that all the sad and trivial things that we hate about life and aging and death in this world, that they're going away. You know, that these, these wrinkles that keep on getting, getting stronger and deeper, yeah, they're here today, but clear, clear skin, smooth skin is on the horizon. Some of you guys, you know, getting a little bit older, like, I can't see well. I hate this new prescription. It, oh, come on. You're, you're, you're telling me there's, there's no distance I can hold this thing and still be able to read it? It's just hopeless? It's, that's gone. The day is coming 
when you are going to behold your king with eyes that are so precise and so strong and so effective that you will truly behold his glory. And if it weren't for the grace of God, you would be undone. What a beautiful thing. One day soon, death will not simply be destroyed. Death will be swallowed up by life. Death will be swallowed up by victory. In this world, we're used to seeing death creeping and clawing at life and stealing life by the inch, sapping life by the second. We're used to decay. We're used to wrinkles. We're used to degeneration. We're used to death swallowing up life. But through the death of Jesus, all of that begins to work backward. And and death is swallowed up by life. Death is swallowed up by victory. Listen to Paul's words in, in 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 51. He's been writing a really long letter. He's probably losing their, the audience's focus a little bit like I might be doing with a few of you. So he leans in and he says, listen, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. What he means by that is that we will not all die a physical death. Some of us who live until Christ's return, will not need to die. We will meet Jesus in the air. He says, we will not all sleep. But if we've placed our faith in Jesus, we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at that last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable have been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up by victory. Amen? That's our hope. So we've looked at these snapshots of a little bit of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Just the sum of the grand scope of what he accomplished. So far we've seen our access to God and the defeat of death and the release of the power of the resurrection. Next, we see awe and worship. We see awe among the outsiders. Awe among those who do not yet know or love or worship our God. Verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, Before we go on, I just want you to think about all that they saw and all that happened. First, all that happened that they didn't see. They didn't see the curtain of the temple torn in two. They weren't standing there. They they probably didn't see any tombs broken open. They hadn't yet seen, and perhaps they wouldn't even recognize them anyway, if they saw some of these saints raised from the dead and walking around the holy city, the city of Jerusalem. They hadn't seen any of that. But what had they seen? They'd seen and they'd felt the earthquake. They'd seen as God snapped off the light switch, as he turned off the sun for three hours. Perhaps more importantly, they'd seen how Jesus suffered. They'd seen what he endured. They'd seen the mockery and the beatings and how he just took it and how he didn't cuss them out 
how he didn't hate them for it. We read in the other Gospels all these other things that they saw. They, they saw as Jesus begged the Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. As people mocked him, as people beat him, thinking, thinking of the mob that's, that's crying out insults, thinking of the Roman soldiers and this very centurion that are, that are overseeing the execution, that are driving the nails, that are putting the post in the ground. That, that beat him, that whipped him. Thinking about the Jewish leaders that were behind all of this. Thinking about everyone who gave their consent or cheered for it. That while Jesus is hanging on the cross, what is on his mind but to cry out to God the Father and say, Father, forgive all of these people because they don't know what they're doing. The centurion and his soldiers, they saw that. This was probably not their first rodeo. This was probably not the first man that they'd executed, but they'd never seen anything like this. They saw him caring for his mother. They saw him caring for others. They saw him caring for the thief who hung beside him, who had mocked him. They saw him forgive that man, invite him to place his faith in him. They saw him promise that man, don't even worry about it. It's over. And today, I promise you, you will be with me in paradise. These are the conversations that Jesus is having as he lifts his body and grabs another breath so that he can give this dying man assurance that he is headed to heaven with Jesus. They'd watched how he suffered. They watched all that he endured. They watched the agony. They watched as he chose the moment in which he would voluntarily surrender his life, entrusting himself to God the Father. Verse 54 again. When the centurion and all those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all of that, all that had happened, they were terrified. They had a literal come-to-Jesus moment. They caught a glimpse of the scope of what they had been a part of of what they had done, of who they had executed. When they saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Was the Son of God. Was this saving faith? I don't know. Not necessarily. There's a lot that they didn't understand. One, it's in the past tense as though he's no longer the Son of God, as though he was going to stay dead. They certainly didn't understand that aspect of it. But at the very least, God was softening the hearts of these rugged and weathered soldiers. At the very least, they were becoming tender and open to considering the truth. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to the awe that we see among these spiritual outsiders, even on the day of Jesus' death? First, we, we stand in awe at the love and the grace and the gentleness and the patience of our God, not just towards them, but towards us. That God is gracious and kind and patient and, and quick to forgive us, even as he was them. And that it's every day, it's again and again, this is simply the nature of our God. And just like this soldier, we should be in awe. Surely this is the Son of God. We should stand in awe ourselves. Second, 
oh, that we would respond by boldly and winsomely sharing the hope that we have with others. Believing that that in the same way that God used this drama to tenderize the hearts of even a Roman centurion, that God can use the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, can use our words to tenderize the hearts of our neighbors and our friends and our family and our co-workers. That other people whose eyes have been closed, think about how closed these guys' eyes were. They just executed Jesus. Think about how hardened and calloused they were. And yet God begins to open their hearts. Who in your life is as callous as that? And yet God in his grace can work. Oh, that he would work in us and soften our hard hearts. And oh, that we would have faith that he might use us to bring tenderness and spiritual openness to the hearts of others. Amen? We've seen access to God, the defeat of death, the release of the power of the resurrection, all among outsiders. Finally, finally, we see a beautiful upheaval of the social order. Verse 55, many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee. Not just that they were in the entourage or or physically followed. No, they were followers of Jesus who'd been following Jesus all the way back the last three years, just like the 12 disciples, they had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. We look um, the beginning of Luke chapter 8, we, we see this, that there were some women among the group. Some of them had some wealth, and, and they, they provided material. They provided the money to fund the ministry. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Many of them, they were watching at a distance among them, were Mary Magdalene. We, we learn about her, about seven demons being cast out of her by the grace of God. Um, Mary, the mother of James and, and Joseph, and, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's the mother of John the Apostle and James the Apostle. Now, why is all this important? Why is it that all four Gospels, in these, in these very brief accounts of Jesus, in the very brief accounts of his life and ministry, in the very brief accounts of his death and resurrection, that accounts, any one of them that you can read through in 10 minutes, the the account, the, the Good Friday Easter story, all of that stuff. Why is it that every single one of the Gospels, all four of them, include this reality that there were many women who were following Jesus who were there at his death? Why is it that we see again and again and again and again and again that the male disciples weren't there? That eventually John came kind of slithering back and, and caught the tail end. But the rest of them is scattered, and yet these women were there. Why do they include that? What's accomplished by by including that? Were these women going to become the primary leaders of this movement that would become the church? Were they going to replace the men and and, and these men who had abandoned Jesus, who had scattered in the face of persecution, they were going to go off in shame and the women were going to step forward and be the primary leaders? No. These cowardly men were actually going to be restored by grace and they were going to lead. And these, and these godly women were going to follow their leadership, which is beautiful and amazing and gracious. But in every gospel account, we see these reversals. We see that these women are being elevated. We see that the poor are being elevated. We see that the weak and the sick are being elevated. We see that the children and the elderly are being elevated. What we see in every one of these gospels 
We see the tax collectors and the prostitutes being elevated. We see that everyone whose society might somehow find a way to marginalize and an excuse to marginalize. Those are the very people that God thrusts into the center of his story. You know, and he says, I didn't choose the strong things in the world. I chose the weak things. I didn't choose the, the, the prestigious and the glamorous and the powerful things in the world. No, I chose the unexpected. I chose the marginalized. And not only did I choose them to love them, no, I chose them to use them. I chose the weak things of the world and the shameful things and the despised things in order that nobody would give glory to them, but no, we'd give glory to God. That he is the one who loves all and uses all and also elevates all. We see that there is open access for all. They don't just have a seat at the table, but they have a prominent seat at the table. They have a seat of honor. And every gospel writer led by the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to highlight the contributions and the faithfulness of those whose society would otherwise marginalize. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to this upheaval of the social order? We ask God to humble us. We ask God to make us a people who don't find our identity in our social status or our accomplishments or anything else in this world. We ask God to make us a people who aren't trying to claw our way to the top by stepping on somebody else's head and making ourselves feel better because in some comparison, we think that we should be elevated above them. No, we're, we're, we ask that God would humble us and we trust his Holy Spirit to continue to work in us to humble us, to give us eyes to see the dignity and the humanity and the image of God that he has placed in all of us so that we will rightly treasure and value all people the way that he does. Amen? The death of Jesus is horrible, and yet the death of Jesus is also wonderful because of all that it accomplishes for God's glory and for our good. May we be a people who joyfully walk in response to all that he has won for us. Amen? Let's pray. God, what a privilege it is to celebrate your gospel again. What a privilege it is to celebrate the death and the resurrection of your son. God, we thank you that you have so lavishly loved us. We thank you that you have chosen us to be a part of your family. And God, we thank you for the privilege of inviting other people into your family. God, I pray for those who are here in person, who are tuning in online, who are still trying to sort out the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally move them to feel welcome, that you'd give them a boldness to ask questions, to seek clarity, to, to seek the support that they need to figure out what it looks like to follow you. Oh, God, I pray for those of us who have known you for a long time. Let us never lose sight of the wonder of what you've accomplished for us and how graciously and lavishly you've loved us. God, I pray you'd give us hearts to celebrate that even now. Amen.